afternoon and welcome to the 114th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will talk about the return to campus and higher education with Juliana Kaplan and Sheldon Jacobson. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 27th, there are 24,266,662 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 24,302,000 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 5,843,293 are in the United States. That's up from 5,807,480 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 180,380 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 179,235 reported yesterday, yet another day with 1,000 deaths or more day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, A Deadly Toll in Academe Disappeared in Inside Higher Ed April 2nd by Marjorie Valgren. When Maurice Berger, the chief curator and research professor at the Center for Art, Design and Visual Culture in Maryland, died from complications of COVID-19, his shocked and heartbroken coworkers said they not only lost a dear friend, a colleague, but a brilliant thinker and collaborator whose scholarship and curated exhibits and projects crossed disciplines and challenged conventional thinking about race and representation in the visual arts. Fellow visual artists, university administrators, and department heads at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where the center, commonly referred to as CADVC, is housed, took his death very personally. But the passing of Berger was also felt elsewhere around the country by others in his field, at other universities, museums, and galleries, and particularly among academics, who considered him not only a groundbreaking scholar, curator, art historian, but a socially conscious public intellectual whose work greatly influenced how the visual arts are presented, viewed, and taught. In the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, as well-known and obscure Americans are being felled by the deadly disease and their lives publicly celebrated or quietly overlooked, Berger's death is just the latest example that, that academia has not been spared in the public health crisis. Berger died on March 22nd, he was 63. Four days later, on March 26th, Michael Sorkin, an architect and director of the graduate urban design program at the City College of at the um, City University of New York City College also died from coronavirus, according to the New York Times. He was 71, and like Berger, an influential thought leader who promoted social justice. Two days after Sorkin's death, William B. Helmreich, a popular New York City sociologist and scholar of Judaism, also died from coronavirus at age 74. He was a distinguished professor of sociology 
at City College and also at the City University of New York's Graduate Center, according to the New York Times. For us and for our students, these tragedies represent a time to reflect on lessons learned, said Freeman A. Probowski III, president of UMBC. One of those lessons that Maurice truly believed is that we are all connected, that humankind is connected, and that we need to talk about how we're connected. Earlier last month, this again was reported in April, so this is in reference to March, Stephen Schwartz, a longtime professor of pathology at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, and a pioneer in the field of vascular biology, passed away after being hospitalized for a COVID-19 infection. He died on March 17th, and he was 78. The current reality of sudden illness and death is already prompting higher ed leaders to contemplate how to negotiate and manage such uncharted waters, as well as how to restart and move forward once the waves of expected deaths slow down or end. Foremost on Hrabowski's mind is ensuring that students understand the significant social and economic implications of the pandemic and are able to place them in a domestic and global context. How do we prepare the next generation for life after this crisis? How do we get them ready as future leaders, he asked. We in the academy should be preparing to have these conversations with our students all the time. Berger's death and his life as a gay Jewish man whose worldview was shaped in part by growing up in a Manhattan housing project with mostly black and Puerto Rican neighbors has been widely covered in recent days. Remembrances have been posted by the Jewish Museum in New York and other venues and an outpouring of tributes and condolences have been shared on Twitter and Facebook. Sorkin was one of the most outspoken public intellectuals in the field of architecture. The New York Times reported a polymath whose prodigious output of essays, lectures, and designs all promoting social justice established him as the political conscience in the field. Elmreich was the author of Against All Odds, Holocaust Survivors and the Successful Lives They Made in America, which appeared in 1992, which the Times described as a data-driven study that highlighted the survivors' resilience and achievements and con contradicted the commonplace image of them as irredeemably traumatized. Although he wrote or edited 18 books, Helmreich will likely be most remembered for walking nearly every single block of New York City. He chronicled that experience in his book, The New York Nobody Knows, Walking 6,000 Miles in the City, which appeared in 2013, which describes his four years of walking virtually every city block all 121,000, totaling 6,163 miles. Schwartz of the University of Washington School of Medicine was also an adjunct professor there in the departments of bioengineering and medicine. He was variously described by friends and colleagues as a researcher, mentor, advocate, and a character. It's a lot to wrap our minds around, isn't it? Kathy O'Dell, associate professor of art history and museum studies at UMBC said of the recent deaths. Tom Moore, UNBC's Director of Arts and Culture said, I think there are some people in the world who on some level really are not replaceable. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today and introduce my guests. Really happy to have this discussion and look forward to your questions and comments throughout the session. Sheldon H. Jacobson is a founder professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He has a PhD in operations research from Cornell University. Dr. Jacobson's research focuses on data-driven risk-based decision-making applied to problems in public health and public policy. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, 
He has published over 30 opinion pieces, I think 32 and counting, he told me a moment ago, and commentaries in such outlets as The Hill, The New York Daily News, The Indianapolis Star, and The Chicago Tribune, providing insights into the impact of COVID-19 on everything from aviation security, air travel, to university openings and college sports. My second guest is Juliana Kaplan. She's associate editor at Business Insider. She works with freelancers and contributors on careers and life coverage, first-person perspectives, and book excerpts. She also covers news, education, and how the pandemic is reshaping our world. She graduated from Barnard College in 2019 with a degree in English and a concentration in creative writing. I'd very much like to welcome Sheldon and Juliana to COVID Calls today. Thanks for making time for this conversation. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. So I'd like to start this conversation the way I always do myself, which is calling in, calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there today. So to start that, let me, um, Juliana, can I start with you, please? Um, yeah, so right now I am at my parents' house in Brookline, right outside of Boston. Um, I actually came back about a week ago to see what's going on with the reopenings over here, of which there are several, but usually I'm in New York. And what's it looking like there right now in terms of, of COVID-19? So right now, um, you may have seen that Massachusetts made some, and Boston in particular, made some fun headlines recently about the Biogen conference that sparked, I believe, 20,000 cases back in February mm -hmm. um, before we were in full onset pandemic mode. But that being said, the situation here, at least so far, seems to be relatively under control. Um, some schools are starting to move in. So I think people are keeping a pretty close eye on that. But in fact, in Massachusetts, indoor and outdoor dining is open, which is always jarring for me to see, especially coming back from New York. Um, and it's really settling into a new normal. So, you know, seeing a lot more people out on the streets, but the semester is starting up and that's a really huge thing in this area. Sheldon, let me turn to you. Same question. How's it looking there? Well, I'm in Urbana-Champaign in central Illinois right now. I'm in my office uh, and it's a pretty quiet building. Uh, there's most of the faculty tend to be working from home. I've chosen to come to the office. I'm actually teaching an in-person class this semester. I had my first week of education, very different. I mean, we have 45,000 students here on campus and the model that is being used by the University of Illinois is hybrid, which means a mixture of in-person as well as uh, online classes. So students in my class can take it either online or in-person. Uh, we are kind of leading the nation right now in testing. We're doing around 15,000 tests per day. For me to be in my office today, I have to go and get tested twice every week. And we are doing tremendous surveillance, especially picking up all the asymptomatic positive pieces, uh, people. So as a result, it's kind of an interesting place to be because of the, the experiment of seeing how the cases evolve. Well, thank you for that update. So, and the the course that you're teaching, you you mentioned you you use the terminology hybrid. We're going to develop some of this terminology today so that people who are listening who may not be up on it um, can follow along with that. Can you can you say a little bit more of that? Because we also hear about the high flex method as well. Can you differentiate between those? Is that what you're doing? 
Well, the hybrid model is when a university makes a decision to have some of their courses online, some of their courses in person. But even the courses that are in person, like my particular course, I have an option where a student can take it online. All of my lectures are taped. They can access them within an hour. Uh, the the uh, assessment that I'm using is going to be take-home exams rather than proctored in-class exams. So I've just made a flexible model, and this is what the hybrid system permits. It gives students that flexibility to take their e education in whatever format that suits them based on their personal preference or their health in this particular case. I see. Well, thank you for that clarification. So let's start maybe right in the middle of things, and then we'll we'll talk about you know, what's been happening over the summer. And Juliana, let me start with, with you on this. Um, you've been following and covering the story at the University of North Carolina. Uh, that was treated as a bit of a canary in the coal, coal mine scenario for people who are facing going back to campus uh, potentially in the, in the weeks to come. So bring us up to speed. What, what did they think was going to happen at UNC Chapel Hill? What happened? What's the status right now? Um, well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think when you ask, what did they think was going to happen? There are a few different camps there. Um, first and foremost, I want to give a shout out to the student journalists at the Daily Tar Heel, which is UNC's student paper, who have been doggedly covering this from the start. Um, they just had a really good uh, FOIA request come through where they're looking at their chancellor's emails, I believe, um, looking at reopening. But, sorry, did that cut out for a sec? Essentially, um, many students said, and particularly student activists said, this is not a good idea. And um, in particular, students who were coming from marginalized backgrounds that have been disproportionately impacted by the coronavirus had been doing really important work, I think, in advocating for having a remote shift um, but then over the summer, UNC, which is obviously UNC Chapel Hill in particular, is part of the Greater University of North Carolina system. Um, oh, fancy tweet guy on there. Um, and they are governed by a board of governors. And that's another political tension as well, which a lot of the student journalists there broke down for me. Um, and the board of governors mandated that they wanted people to return to campus. There would be essentially no tuition refunds for students um, if classes went online. There would not be a reduction in tuition or fees. Um, and you know, the editor-in-chief of the Daily Tar Heel told me that this was perceived in some senses as a move to get more money. Um, and at the same time, kind of in parallel while this was happening, Orange County, which is the district that UNC Chapel Hill is located in, was having its own reopening debate over its public schools. Um, and ultimately, I believe at this point, their schools are online for at least the first, I wanna say five to nine weeks that has continued to evolve. Um, and UNC was originally gonna open with 100% residential capacity. That's what the reporting said back in July. I think they ultimately cut that down to around two thirds. Um, but classes there began on August 10th. And about a week later, uh, everyone was sent online. And um, I believe Monday and Tuesday of this week, the students actually had off to vacate the campus. So 
students arrived. Um, there was no mandated testing, unlike what's happening with Dr. Jacobson, which I think is a really interesting system um, that should have more national attention as that moves forward. Um, and UNC had set aside, I believe, one dorm as a coronavirus quarantine dorm. Um, immediately, some clusters started popping up. I think within the first week, they had at least four confirmed by the Sunday night before they announced going remote. Um, and one of the students I spoke to who received a notification, um, she received informal notification that she had been exposed, I believe on Sunday, received formal notification from the school on Monday that she had potential exposure to coronavirus um, and was not sent to the quarantine dorm. They actually had a dashboard tracking the occupancy of that quarantine dorm. She said at that point, it was pretty much full. Um, and she was sent to a local hotel. So that was kind of the situation within, I believe it was mm -hmm. six total days, seven total days. Um, and some workers and faculty members were actually suing the system over reopening. Some of the professors um, and the faculty members, I believe had written, I wanna I say inside higher ed, um, begging students not to come. And they came. There was coronavirus and now they have to leave so that's kind of a, a broader overview of the situation but there were kind of three camps the way the daily tar heel editor-in-chief um anna broke it down for me which was students who were like we saw this coming uh students who were like a little bit surprised by how quickly it happened we're like oh didn't think it would happen that early in the semester and then mm -hmm. students who were really just caught unaware but mm -hmm. overall um everyone got sent home. One of the students I spoke to as well who worked in student housing told me that the school had what she calls an express checkout for like residential students. Um, and even before the school went online, she saw like so-called clusters of students deciding to move out because people saw the writing on the wall after about a week. Uh, thank you so, for that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's complicated to say the least. And I'm, it was interesting for you to break down those sort of different student uh, perspective camps. Sheldon, I want to turn to you. Um, among the many things you've written, uh, just referring to a piece that you published recently in, in The Hill, also in reference to the UNC story, and I'm just going to give a quick quote here, believing that a few hundred infections among thousands of students is trouble is naive. The trouble is not when students arrive on campus infected or when some community transmission occurs among students. It's when the spread of these infections accelerates and community transmission reaches the local residents, particularly those who are older and more vulnerable to bad outcomes. So uh, take us into that, uh, that opinion. You think UNC should have stuck with the plan? Well, it is very easy to look at a few cases, and it could be hundreds of cases, and panic. And the real issue is, is what are we up against here? We've learned so much about COVID-19. We have a much better sense of who is at risk for bad outcomes, hospitalizations, uh, being in an ICU or even dying. So we understand so much more than we did back in March and April when most of the country was in stay at home orders. Under the circumstances, UNC had a plan and they were executing their plan. And once they saw cases, there was just wholesale panic from what I can tell, and they just sent people away. That of itself is dangerous because they're sending away infected people back to communities who don't need those infections. So in many ways, once you make the commitment to start, you really have to follow through. But 
I think they had a knee-jerk reaction of panic and fear, and they didn't know what to do. And the natural inclination is to avoid the risk in front of you rather than manage it. Here at the University of Illinois, we've had you know dozens of cases. They're being managed and they're being looked at and isolated as appropriately. I would anticipate before the next, oh, let's say the next week, we'll probably have anywhere between six and 900 positive cases in our community. Uh, all of them being students, all of them being dealt with appropriately. And by doing that and limiting the transmission, especially to the local residents and to the vulnerable faculty, then we're in a position that we can actually get through this. There's going to be this surge initially. That's expected. It's what you do with it. UNC reacted poorly, I believe, uh, and either their plan was not well conceived or they they initially thought we'll bring them back for the economic reason and then we'll send them away quickly and that's the way we can justify what we're doing. I think both are, are, are bad to think about. Ultimately, they could have followed through in their plan. And I believe if they had with the appropriate measures in place, they could have gotten through it and made it to a much safer point than they are now. Let me just stay with, um, there's so many fascinating things on the table here already, but let me just stay with one of these points that you just raised, Sheldon, about this initial burst of infections that you believe would be expected with a large student population yeah. returning. Um, it strikes me at that particular moment, that's when the crucial, this crucial communication um, moment and a communication strategy needed to have been very well established at that point. A science communication strategy to students, uh, a strategy to, that will allow students to talk to each other and to parents, and then a strategy for university leadership to talk to the media, legislators, parents. I mean, it boggles the mind the many different kinds of communications that you needed in place. You think that just didn't happen at UNC? Can you tell us a little bit about Illinois' strategy in that regard to the extent that you've been privy to it? UNC demonstrates exactly what not to do during a COVID-19 out outbreak. Uh, they, they had a crisis in communication and it became the students versus the faculty, the students versus the administrators, and that is not going to work. We're not here to punish students for basically behaving like students. We're here to embrace them as partners, and if you read so many universities who are reprimanding students, sending them away, and you know, it's like punishing a, uh, a novice golfer because they're not golfing like a pro. Uh, the students are behaving like they're supposed to behave. And when you develop a partnership with them, then they can buy in using links to student government, uh, to this, the leaders of the fraternities and sorority organizations by trying to embrace a more, a more uh, partnership mode rather than a punishing mode, every university can get through this. However, there's one however, the key is frequent testing. If you don't do the frequent testing and you don't know who the positives are, because most students are asymptomatic and among themselves, it's not a problem, but when they spread it outside the university community to the local residents or to potentially the faculty, then you have a problem. If you have a plan in place like this and building those partnerships, you can actually get through this. Uh, the thing is UNC didn't 
do it. They they punted. Uh, North Notre Dame didn't even start. Michigan State didn't even start. NC State did not even start. And they punted even before the students came. This is not a formula for success. I think we have to look a little more deeply at what the data is saying and use that information to guide us. And what I think we're doing at the University of Illinois, and I wrote this in an op-ed in the Sun-Times with Janet Jokola, who's the acting regional dean here on our medical campus, uh, we have a chance because we're doing on the order of you know, 70,000 tests a week. 70,000 tests a week, and we're getting rapid responses, and the people who are positive don't have the chance to transmit it to the community. That's the formula for success that we see here. Juliana, let me bring that back to you know the reporting you did and, and what you know about UNC on this communication issue. Sounds like very quickly whatever had been in place, if there was a strategy, um, fell apart. You, you interviewed students about that. They felt like they couldn't get good information or just wasn't what they were expecting. Can you say a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that especially right after the UNC announcement, their president pretty much punted the responsibility to the students, um, I think as Dr. Jacobson called out. And yeah, I think that it's hard to break down, you know, what <laughs> what exactly happened or went wrong there. I mean, I I like to assume that everyone is doing the best that they can. But yeah, I do think it was an issue of communication, but also certainly infrastructure. I think what you're describing in terms of testing is a really important aspect to making any sort of reopening for any space, workplace, school, whatever. Um successful and you know i think that communication yes can go only so far um if you don't really have the infrastructure to back it up as well and i think that's a really important thing to call out um and then i think there was also a failure of communication and infrastructure on the other side of the decision as well um a lot of students i spoke to said that there wasn't any uniform policy um in regards to classes right after the announcement some professors like or departments individually chose to hit pause um others just continued on as though nothing had happened uh the student i spoke to who was in isolation told me that she only got one day of excused absences when she had to be in isolation for three days because that's how long her test processing took um and that, that's another place i think where communication broke down as well um and they actually unc in coordinating the move out process did I think finally give students um, a break from classes on Monday and Tuesday as well. Another student I spoke to who was the president of the senior class um, and is also the treasurer for the black student movement said it was really unclear how refunds were gonna work in terms of housing as well. So, you know, I think that that's infrastructure you have to prepare if this is something you're considering. Um, they had to start, he told me they started a mutual aid fund because students had immediate move out costs and financial needs sure. that they weren't getting any communication around either. But yeah, I mean, I think the, the mm -hmm. line going in for students was many students kind of came in tentatively like, okay, if you're sure, like, we'll come. Um, right. And you know, the communication is, we're gonna put, and I think this has been like, you know, seen in different schools, uh, we're gonna have a social pact and we're gonna ask you to stay safe, track your symptoms. If you're feeling sick, do the self-reporting. But 
you know, I think even if that's clearly communicated, if you don't really have like the infrastructure and the planning to back that up, you're still going to have that inevitable breakdown. reminding folks you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Sheldon Jacobson and Juliana Kaplan today about higher education and the return to campus. I'm going to go back now to the late spring actually and Sheldon asked you this this question and maybe I'll even offer a little perspective from where I teach at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Um, but you know the discussion about reopening for the fall was very lively before the spring semester had ended. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly was at Drexel, and I'd like to get your your sense of it from, from Illinois. And I guess, you know, for people who don't follow higher ed as closely, could you tell us a little bit about why you, you think that conversation was so crucial even that early? Why worry about it in April and May? Why worry about September that early? Well, once we had stay-at-home orders in place, nobody knew how long they were going to last. They didn't know the complete implications. Universities were able to weather a lot of the financial storm in the spring semester because it was already halfway done. And the students, for the most part, were forgiving. Uh, they understood the situation and moving to online remote education was acceptable. But now you're planning for the beginning of the school year in August and September, and now it's a completely different terrain. That higher education brings value, not just through the knowledge that is transmitted, but through the social interactions. Universities are designed to bring people together. COVID-19 demands that we stay apart. There is a complete conflict between the two. And universities began to think about how they were gonna resolve this issue. Part of it is they were driven by economics. That's the reality. But part of it was just sustaining the business model of education and delivering it. And I don't mean just to, from the economic point of view of business, it's just the very purpose of higher education in this country. It, I've been following the Chronicle of Higher Education, who basically tracks the thousands of schools with what their intention is. And at one time, very early in the summer, they were showing around two-thirds of the school were intending some form of in-person education. And then it kept dropping and dropping to the point now that it's in around the 20% point. So when you start to look at it that way, you realize that a lot of schools either came to the conclusion that they could not have in-person in education or they were unwilling to do what it takes to have in-person education. This is bold to have in-person education. There's a number of very large schools who are doing it as we speak. Uh, Purdue has been certainly setting the path and, and Mitch Daniels, their president, has been boldly stating, we are gonna have in-person education, written op-eds about it, and he's been at the forefront of this. Uh, other schools, uh, University of Iowa, another school, many of them in the Midwest, we're a hybrid model. So we have a mixture of in-person as well as uh, online courses. The point is that people wanted to have in-person education, but the virus, not the administrators, dictate what we can do. 
The virus will determine everything in terms of every aspect of opening. And if we ignore the virus, the virus will eat us alive. Were you surprised when Mitch Daniels, I certainly remember that, I think his was the first of the op-eds uh, that came out and, and he made a, uh, not only a sort of a bold pledge in a case of the responsibility for higher education, but it was also a laundry list of all of the various technical things that would have to be sort of settled mm -hmm. and, and uh, brought to bear yeah. on the issue. And as you point out, they, they followed that plan. At least it, it seems the president of Brown University followed not far behind, and then over the late summer, they backed away from that. Yeah. So that's early, early to press, kind of early op-ed um, was strong from some university presidents. Um, I wonder if that didn't create expectations that were very hard to reach. Do you think that set up a, a, a situation um, where you know a, a leader steps forward and says, this is what we're going to do, and then hands it to other senior administrators, and impossible challenge over the summer? Mitch Daniels made it clear that the students were not at risk, and he is right. And we've learned so much more that he's even more than right. It's very clear that they, they have minimal personal health risk. What isn't in the equation is the fact that if we let the infection spread unfettered, then you're going to infect people who are at risk. And that's the part of the equation that you have to take into account. You can't simply say a university is an isolated entity in the middle of nowhere where it can't infect other people. Uh, the other thing to remember is that university administrators who tend to be older are also typically in a more at-risk group than the students. Uh, but the university administrators are the decision makers. And it's not surprising that eventually people backed off. Mitch Daniels has not, but we're still early in the semester. We're only in, you know, week one and week two. I'd like to see where we are in the beginning of October. Juliana, let me bring that, that same question to you and, and sort of broaden out from UNC. Well, what kinds of, of discussions have you been following in terms of what other universities have, have tried to do over the summer in their, in their plans? Yeah, um, I think that the Brown is a really good example because I feel like that along with Purdue kind of sent this, this shockwave, um, this idea around, you know, what does higher ed mean and what doesn't it mean? Um, I think a really interesting point that I wrote about in an article kind of covering the biggest questions around reopening is, you know, the, the social aspect as well, which Dr. Jacobson touched upon. Um, and I think that that is something, especially as somebody who had a pretty, like, for me, so much of school was classes, yes, but also building those connections, living in the dorms, being in those communal spaces, again, all of those things that the virus hates. Um, but I, as, a, as an English major with many friends who work in theater, for instance, those are things that I could feel a lot of palpable mourning for as well. So I think how schools are getting creative in terms of creating those social spaces as well is a discussion that I have been following along with. I think that, um, for instance, as I mentioned, I was here to kind of see what's happening with reopening. Harvard, I think, made a pretty strong statement when they said classes are going to be online, but we are going to bring people to campus. And I think kind of acknowledged the unspoken part of college, which is that college is not just, you know, a class that appears on a screen or is in front of you. It's also about those social connections as well. Um, and I think that another thing 
that has been important and I think has gotten some good coverage is the inequities when people get sent home as well mm -hmm. and the necessity of opening campus to some students who you know I think people don't necessarily understand what it means when some students need campus some students are sharing laptops um, with people at home they don't have a quiet or safe space to take those classes um, when you pull somebody out of a library, for instance, that's a, a huge move to make. Um, and I think that college has always had sort of a false dichotomy of being seen as a great equalizer, where I think a lot of fault lines of inequity kind of live, um, that's my dog barking, um, kind of live under the surface of the classes in the dorms that you all share. But I think that that drove a lot of these inequities even to into more stark relief. So for me, discussion I've been following in particular is how are schools aiming to provide for those students who are in those positions and have only had them exacerbated. I mean, I, everyone knows what's going on with the economy as well. So more students are still in that position. I think a lot of people, for instance, have focused on tuition. Um, and I think there's been a lot of really interesting discussions on both sides of whether tuition should be lowered or should remain the same um a really compelling argument i've seen is that a lot more students are going to need financial aid for instance so in looking at how schools are approaching reopening i think something that i've been really keeping a particular eye on is how are they looking to create those social spaces or how are they acknowledging that those are a crucial part of the college experience and how are they also providing for students for whom campus is not just you know a nice space to have friends or have theater or have whatever you know live engagements but is really a lifeline as well but it, it really throws into relief i mean just this conversation just thank you both for attending to the nuances of this because there's so many different ways to to look at this and at some level you do come down to this um i think deep conversation about what higher education is supposed to be for in the first place in the united states um, it, and what is the, the, even sometimes you hear discussion, the moral imperative of, of higher education, what is it there for? And I've heard many different answers to that, you know, from, from the imperative that it, universities should, even in times of turmoil, should be open. It should be a knowledge production center. Another argument you hear is that the primary responsibility of university is to the health and welfare of students. Um, I don't think we have to choose one or the other, but I've been interested to see how at different moments since the spring, um, different answers to that question have been invoked. I wonder, Sheldon, if you want to speak to that, and particularly this point you made, I think earlier was very compelling about, you know, the planning can all be perfect, except if you haven't taken into account that the university is not an island, but it also exists within a broader uh, a broader community in Philadelphia where I teach, that community is literally the campus and the community are in the same space. So you don't have the luxury of thinking that students can come back and won't be immediately engaged with the community because that's where they live. Can you say a little bit more about these sort of bigger issues at play when we talk about bringing students back? You know, higher education is in many ways a launch pad for better things for people. If people did not gain something by going to a university and a college, then why would they go? And this has persisted for decades. COVID-19 is challenging that model. And the question now becomes, what is the role of higher education? Now, some people say it's to give people the skills they need 
so that they can make a living, and that's certainly very important. But really, higher education is many things to many different people. And for some people, it is purely the acquiring of skills and knowledge to be able to make a living. For other people, it is learning how to learn. You know, I, I, I work in a STEM field, you know, computer science, uh, and my students have no problems getting positions, uh, making very good salaries. That is just not an issue. However, I'm a strong advocate for the social sciences. I do believe it's important for us to have a very broad education and appreciation for the arts, for the literature, because it really makes us better citizens. In fact, what it does is it draws us together as human beings. And if anything right now in society, the divisiveness is literally splitting us apart. Uh, COVID-19 is exacerbating that. And we as universities, we want to protect the health of our students, of our faculty, of our communities. But health is more than just physical. There's also mental health. There's emotional health. And I'll go so far as to say kind of the community health. Some would call that spiritual health. All of these things are part of the mission of universities. We may not state that explicitly, but it really is why we're here and what we do. And if we focus on only one of those objectives, we're going to miss an opportunity to make a difference. And that's why I think it's critical that we have to look holistically as a contributor to our communities, to, to our country, and bring people together in the safest possible way. You can't eliminate risk completely. I've done a lot of work on aviation security. If you don't want to be in an airplane crash, don't fly. But if you drive, you're actually exposing yourself to more risk. That's the laws of unintended consequences. The same thing exists here. I'm a believer that we have to bring people together. And there are health risks, but there's other risks that we have to take into account as well. Juliana, you were alluding to um, you know this, and also thank you, Sheldon, for the shout out for the arts and the social sciences. There, uh, an important function of what universities are about. And and Juliana, just uh, to you on this point, um, you know it is true that universities are more than just knowledge transfer stations. There's a lot that happens in terms of building social network, professional network, but also as generators of the arts themselves. And UNC is a great example of that, right? I mean, there's an arts economy of Chapel Hill, just like in Philadelphia where Drexel is, there's an arts and culture economy, enormous arts and culture economy of Philadelphia. The universities have a lot, big role to play in that. Was that part of the conversation at, at UNC as well, either in terms of a, a stronger reason to try to bring students back in, can you generalize at all about that? The students who wanted to come back were the ones who were more active in those kinds of uh, functions of the campus, theater, uh, art, uh, maybe also sciences that have a lab component, people that needed to physically be in those spaces to actually do the creative work they wanted to do. That is a really good question. And I don't think I can generalize on it. I would say, you know, I think it's a weird double-edged sword where people whose whole course of study is about thinking critically, in particular with social sciences and the arts. As I said, I was an English major myself, so I spent almost all of college just unpacking things. Um, and I think that, you know, perhaps that's a community that I've seen that, that has been particularly attuned to uh, the risks of bringing people together of thinking critically around you know what 
what is the payoff of such things? So I don't think I can really accurately have a generalization around that. Mm. I do remember in my reporting, I talked to a campus safety officer um, in New York and he was saying also that it can create a weird hierarchy as well um, when certain majors are seen as needing to be in the classroom when others aren't during this time. And I believe like one of his exact, one of the exact quotes, I'm paraphrasing a little is, you know, why should my chem majors be risking their lives every day and the philosophy majors stay at home and watch the lecture? So, you know, I think again, it creates kind of another weird dichotomy. The short answer to your question is no, I don't really think I can generalize around that. I think that it's all just such a strange double-edged sword in the sense that artistic communities that perhaps have the most reason to come together physically, in particular theater and performance, I think, also due to their course of training have a really acute understanding of you know how different systemic decisions can impact other people so it's just another you know weird paradox of this time uh, let me come to this uh some of the harder issues at play here sheldon you alluded to this earlier about the financial decision making um maybe even what's been described and i think there are some lawsuits pending families who feel that um, that universities have been communicating in bad faith, some of them, keeping students, stringing them along, getting them, making sure they didn't drop out, making sure that they put down those down payments for housing, whatever it may be, and then you wait to the last moment and pull back. One would like to believe that those decisions are made because university leadership is keeping a close eye on the epidemiology in conjunction with state leadership, I'd like to say federal leadership, but I'm going to say state leadership. Um, <laughs> and then they're making those decisions in a fine-tuned way because they believe that the, the reward of return um, is no longer uh, worth the risk. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because there's lawsuits. Of course, there's a lot. This is America, so there's a lot of argument. But on this point, there's a lot of very heated argument that I'm hearing from parents, particularly and students, about breach of trust with university leadership in this regard. The point you make, Scott, is quite important because ultimately we've had a crisis in communication. And if you look at any situation that we've experienced in this country, and I'm gonna go back to September 11th, where that was a major crisis. And I think about Rudy Giuliani coming forward with statements to calm people's concerns and experience during a very heinous day in our history. And it worked. We're in a situation now that we don't have this one spokesperson. We have universities having, you know, each of them represents a spokesperson. And how they communicate, you know, is critical to develop the trust and the partnerships that are necessary to succeed. This is not a one-way street. This is a two-way communication. And some schools have done it better than others. You know, I am of the belief that we have to move forward. And there are risks, and I understand those risks. I am, because the data speaks to those risks. It's critical that we look very, very clearly that we're not, it's not us against them. And that's unfortunately what so much in society has become. And COVID-19 has just exacerbated it. We have to look more holistically at our role and our place. 
and working with our students. And it's not simply to pander to every group, but to realize we're in this together and we all want to succeed. And if universities took that stance and communicated clearly, concisely, in spite of all the risks, then we can actually get through this. A lot of universities have failed. Let's be, let's be realistic. Let's call it what it is. Others have done better. We've learned so much. One of the things that I said early on is I don't want every university, all 3,000 to 4,000 universities opening in the same way. I want to see diversity because we don't know how to open yet. And we're going to figure it out because a few of them are going to get it right. And then we can all learn from that. That is where we are at right now. And that is critical. And we're learning what doesn't work. UNC's model does not work. I'm hoping the University of Illinois does work. But there are others that will be successful, which will be different. That is the approach we need to take. But the key is partnerships. It really is important. This, it's not just students paying tuition. It's students being part of a family and a community. And universities who are taking that approach have a much better chance to succeed. I think the, the concern here that has been articulated in some quarters is that there was a kind of a cost-benefit analysis that's been made um, and that that has been the, the way these decisions have been uh, decided and have been made in some, in some instances where, you know, you would put on one side of the ledger the number of uh, dollars that are lost from tuition and you put on the other side um, the cost, um, you know, of whatever worst case scenarios might be. It, it sounds the way you're characterizing it, Sheldon and Juliana both, is a lot more complicated than that. Um, there is an issue here though that I think is, um, is pretty relevant to both of your cases, Illinois and North Carolina, the one Juliana you've been talking about, in a state university system, um, particularly a big one. Um, there is a lot of communication um, between state houses chancellor's offices and president's offices. There's sort of a political channel there too. Is it possible that there, you know, the sort of role of politics has been important? Or I guess maybe I should ask to what extent has the role of politics been important? Where governors may have pressured chancellors, may have pressured university presidents, or is that not really capturing what you, you both have seen in these situations. Juliana, let me ask you that first, since you know the UNC case, and then Jake Sheldon, let me ask you that as well. Politics in the decision-making. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. A dynamic that I heard a little bit about was the um, UNC Board of Governors, which are Republican appointees at this point, um, and that kind of clashed with perhaps a more um, socially liberal student body as well. So I think that's definitely a point in politics that has played out. I think it's also important to look to um, how different possible funding, like stimulus funding for reopening has looked and worked. And this is something that I've covered a bit as well. Um, you know, illusions and not subtle illusions from the GOP that different types of funding, I think primarily more for public schools, but also for colleges and universities as well. Um, being contingent upon certain degrees of reopening as well. So, you know, I don't think that's necessarily an undercurrent. That's been something that's been a pretty stated intention. Again, that's more so funding for public school systems as well. But I think the fact that that has been set as a precedent and as a way that funding can be contingent, particularly for public systems, is really important to note. 
Sheldon, same to you. Illinois is a big, big state, very populated, big system, lots of different kinds of universities. You're at the flagship. Is there a, a red telephone that connects your president's office to the governor's office in which the governor can say, hey, you've got to reopen some percentage or we're not going to get this stimulus money? I, I, I'm describing it as a cartoon, but I'm curious what you think about it. Well, I'm not privy to those conversations, so I can't talk with any kind of uh, uh, proof that this is exactly what went on. I can talk in generalities about what we've seen around the country. If you look at the institutions that are tending to want to have in-person education, they then t they tend to be centered in states and in areas that are more conservative. I mean, that is just the reality. Does that mean it's a conservative position rather than a more liberal position? I, I would refrain to taking it that far. However, if you look, for example, at the University of Iowa and the University of Nebraska, they were claimed to have been the only two schools that voted to have the Big Ten have college football and college sports this fall. They're also by far the most conservative areas among all the schools in the Big Ten. So when you look at it that way, it's hard not to connect the darts, but I hate to assume causation when there's just clearly association because we don't know really what goes on in the minds and hearts of people when they're making these decisions. I would say though that you know, we have to move forward. And looking only at the single dimension of health risk is really far too narrow. If we made all our decisions in our life or in society based on one dimension, we wouldn't be where we are today as a nation and as a world. It's important for us to move forward broadly and consider all of the consequences and all of the objectives and use all of that information to make informed decisions. In spite of that, people still come to different decisions because they weight the objectives differently based on importance. And that's why we see different outcomes. Just reminding people you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about the various different uh, aspects that have to do with the reopening of college campuses this fall with Juliana Kaplan and Sheldon Jacobson. I want to bring another layer into this. So I just want to remind people you can get questions in, put them into the YouTube live chat or you can put them up on Twitter, just tag at US of Disaster. So this has been, if there was ever a time in American history that we could look at uh, cascading and compound disasters. This is it. I mean, literally today, I think, um, with what's happening in Kenosha and California and Louisiana, and then the pandemic, <clears throat> global pandemic, which is striking every community in America. I wonder um, how the George Floyd, you know, everything that went on with that George Floyd's death, and then the protests that followed. Many students, of course, involved in those protests, but not on campus in many instances, but in their own home communities. I wonder, have you heard anything about how that may have um, factored into any of the planning or how universities may be planning for that as well? You know, we're going to bring students back on campus. We're going to have to do social distancing. And at the same time, we know 
um, and students are engaged in social justice activities that they may try to do it as safely as possible, but that's going to add another layer of risk. Has that been part of any of the conversations that you've been following? I'll leave that open to either one of you if you've followed that at all. I haven't seen that specifically called out, and I think there's a lot of strong data and evidence as well if you look at kind of the first wave of protests, um, and obviously they're ongoing, um, following George Floyd's murder and continuing with the shooting of Jacob Blake, I think that those protests that, again, have been ongoing have been reignited. Um, but there has been, you know, looking at the data, I think no significant community transmission among those protesters as well. I would honestly say the the George Floyd murder perhaps was more of a pedagogical um, kind of, I don't know if it's awakening is the right word because these issues have always existed, um, but perhaps yeah. insistence as well um, for these schools. Um, and I think, you know, also in particular, looking at the UNC example, for instance, a lot of marginalized students, um, including, you know, from their black student movement, for instance, spoke about the, you know, proven more, the proven way that um, certain people in America are more likely to be disproportionately impacted and killed by coronavirus. And somebody's skin color does not dictate, you know, if they're more or less likely to be killed or contract coronavirus or that they're more susceptible, that is due to all of these systemic issues as well. And I think, you know, something that a lot of students have pointed out and I think something that's an important consideration as well. And particularly with what Dr. Jacobson, I think said early on, if you bring all these students to campus and you send them all home, there's also incredible barriers in the healthcare system as well. So if you have all these students on campus and, you know, God forbid somebody does get sick and they get sent back to an area where they systemically don't have access to health care or clear routes to that or are in a neighborhood um, that is more densely populated due to redlining, I think that's another aspect of that as well that is really important and worth interrogating. Sheldon, same question to you. You said universities are places that are designed to bring people together and that's for also uh, action on the social challenges of any given time. And this is the most profound moment of that that I've experienced in my lifetime. That factored into the planning that you have been um, privy to or how you think about risk management in this kind of a situation? Well, a very simple response to the question, Scott, is it's complicated. And it is a very complex issue. I think human nature, we try to simplify things. Uh, the one thing about bringing people back to campus is it enables students who are coming from environments where they're more disadvantaged to be lifted up. And we don't want to deprive people of that opportunity. I'm a strong believer in, in voice. If you have an opinion, you should be given the opportunity to speak it. You know, I will fight for a person's right to state their view that I am completely diametrically opposed to. That is my own personal value systems. I, I, that's part of my DNA. And I think we should all have the opportunity. Just because people disagree doesn't mean that we have to create a divisive environment. It's that and universities are truly 
the, the breeding ground of that kind of dialogue and communication. And now with COVID-19, with what happened in Minneapolis, you know, heinous things, uh, we now are in a position that we can truly make a difference. And for us to stay apart and not gather, and I don't mean just physically, I'm talking collectively as people who are in dialogue, is in fact hurting rather than helping our society. So we're in a very, very special place and we can make a, a difference. We can have a role to bring us through this from the social, from the, from the health perspective. This is an opportunity for us and we should shine. We should not run from it. Seems to me, I mean, that's one of the strongest arguments I've heard yet um, to allay the fears and the, the necessary risks that will come with bringing students back on campus is to amplify those voices. And I think you've both spoken very uh, effectively um, about the special challenges that students who come from um, students who represent minority groups um, may not have in, the, in their own communities. They may not have the opportunities, um, maybe for housing, certainly for education, um, healthcare, or for that opportunity to find voice that they that they could find on campus. That seems like a really crucial aspect of this that I've heard much less about. I would say at Drexel University, for example. Um, students have led the way, as they always will and always do, um, in demanding um, that there be, even if they're virtual remote formats, that those formats should exist and that the work of student um, movements for racial justice need to continue. Having said that, there is, um, there is a missing piece, which is they're physically, they're not together to do that kind of work and to do it um, in all of the different spaces that the campus allows. And so I think that's a really crucial aspect of this. I'd like to hear a lot more about. We're up on time. I want to get one quick last question into both of you. And it's really the, the sort of where we're we going to go from here question. Um, I'm a little worried that Americans feel that a vaccine is going to drop from the sky and we're going to all go back to the way it was December 31st, uh, 2019. Uh, I think in higher ed, that is uh, magical thinking. And yet, I can't wrap my mind around how, once we do reach a point with a vaccine, what that's going to mean for higher ed. Are we just going to go back to the way things were? So what of the changes that you've seen, um, this question to both of you, do you think are going to stick? How is higher ed going to change through this time? Uh, and in what ways are we going to go back to maybe the way we were before this all started? Juliana, can I throw that question to you first? I know it's a hard question, but I'm really curious to get your take on it. Yeah, sure. Um, so I have Good. all of the answers to this and I'm very excited to share them with everyone. <laughs> no, I was saying to my mom the other day actually, and she's a professor. So very interesting perspectives here. Just saying, um, I'm already exhausted. We're going to be dealing with this for the rest of our lives. Like it, it's terrible living through unprecedented times and I would not recommend it to anybody at this juncture. <laughs> um, after living through quite a few of them. So that being said, you know, I think that there are some pretty obvious silver linings. I think that classes are going to be a lot more accessible in all aspects of the word. Um, I know for years, many students who might have um, like any number of disabilities have called for perhaps more asynchronous teaching, closed captioned, recorded, um, kind of a plethora of understanding around the different things that people bring to the table. And I think that now that we have a generation of professors who, you know, perhaps previously people were like, oh, I don't know how this technology works. Like, 
it is obviously an extra burden on professors to learn this as well. But I think that now that that is going to have significant investment and kind of be ingrained within pedagogy, I would imagine for at least the next couple of years, I think that's going to be a really nice silver lining as well. I know also a lot of professors um, at different universities are opening up their streamed courses to a wider public. So I would hope that perhaps that's an opportunity to give people more knowledge. Um, but yeah, that being said, where do we go from here? I think that unfortunately, I think, you know, we're going to lose some schools, you know, we've been losing smaller schools. Um, smaller private schools for a while. I think that's going to be really hard. Um, and I think that, you know, an unexpected consequence of that is what happens to those alums, for instance, navigating a post-COVID economy. Um, something else that I've been covering as well is the high school students, you know. Do you apply to Zoom University? Like, how many students are going to actually be going to school as well? You know, what is the rule? the role of school going to be. And I think that that's going to be really contingent on how this year plays out as well. If people find really meaningful things to do during this gap year, um, you know, an incredible number of students are deferring and, you know, also quite simply can't afford college right now. Um, if there are more meaningful alternatives out there, for instance, I think that could be a rethinking of what college and higher ed means in our society as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a positive or negative. I wrote a piece about high school juniors are going to be the ones. Um, they're now rising seniors, but the then juniors are going to be the ones who feel the effects of this. They are going to, if schools are able to resume it all in person in 2021 in like any full capacity, all of those students who deferred are going to come rushing back. And those students who are rising seniors have probably not been able to sit for their SAT, to sit for those standardized tests and had all of those other inequities kind of, you know, cracked open as well. Um, and so it'll be really interesting to see what the composition of those college courses look like as well. Um, yeah, I really <laughs> wish I, I wish I had answers. I wish I could look into the crystal ball. Um, but like if, if I did, I think that, you know, <laughs> I probably wouldn't, wouldn't be a journalist. I'd be working with Dr. Fauci. I don't know. Um, but I think that in terms of higher ed, we're going to think a lot more about, you know, what does it mean to us? I think we'll perhaps get more of an emphasis on it as a social space, as a space for creating arts, for instance. I think that is a void that we're going to feel a lot. And that's not to say people aren't creating arts. Um, I think also Dr. Jacobson has touched upon it a lot about the importance of discourse and dialogue and critical thinking. And I think that a lot of humanities departments have already been underfunded. And I think that we're going to feel the effects of that as well and my hope would be perhaps there's more of an emphasis on you know well-rounded students um particularly i think as people feel their brains melt as they look at zoom for like 10 hours a day yeah. but yeah this is a winding answer i don't i don't know if i have like um an exact answer as well i think something else that's important to keep an eye on also is who are the professors of the future going to be who's able to stay in their PhD program, who's stuck in a foreign country, for instance, who's the talent that's no longer coming to the United States because they don't see it as a viable place to be. That's something else that I've seen much discussion of. Um, so not only who are the people who are entering the universities, but who are the people guiding those universities as well. I think that there's just gonna be like, guys, we're gonna be dealing with this for like, like the immediate effects of this for at least a decade is my guess. 
Um, and I would say at least for the rest of my lifetime, I'm 23. Uh, I think everything is going to be touched by it. Um, so in terms of higher ed, I guess immediate predictions, I think some schools are not going to be able to weather the crisis. I think that that's really, really, really sad. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot less students. I, I really worry about mental health as well. I think that we're already in a mental health crisis. I think this is only going to get worse um, when, you know, being together is something that can be helpful for that. But I also like to hope that this silver lining is we come out with maybe a more accessible version of higher education, one that understands the importance of those community spaces when they're yanked away, those arts, those, you know, critical thinking skills. But that's great. Some yeah, really I really valuable. don't know. Well, I mean, there's a lot of valuable insights in there. One that I hadn't really fully considered till you were saying it was the long uh, thinking of higher education, not only in terms of the students who are coming in the pipeline, but also those who are, who are in graduate school and heading out. And even right there, you might have a 10-year span of people in age in age range. Of course, even, even broader than that. I hadn't thought about high school juniors as the ones we really should be keeping an eye on. Really uh, brilliant insight on that. Sheldon, let me give you the last word on this. Um, I don't have the crystal ball to hand you, but I know you've been thinking a lot about what's over the horizon on this. Is the vaccine going to put us back where we were, or has higher ed changed forever? Well, uh, a little different from Giuliani, uh, one of the things that I believe is that living through unprecedented times as we're going through right now is actually kind of exciting. Uh, there are risks, certainly, but very few people can say that they lived through a global pandemic. The people who were around in 1917, 18, and 19, who most of them are not with us anymore. Uh, so this is unprecedented times, and I kind of try to look at the fact that the glass could be either half full or half empty. I like to say that it's half full because every crisis creates an opportunity. And higher education, in fact, all of our society if we look back to December 31st, 2019, and people are longing for that return, it's gone forever. This is a new world, and a vaccine is not going to make a complete difference, either in higher education or in society. I'm not a big believer that a vaccine is the solution, because if we look at other coronaviruses, uh, which are more benign, we don't have a, a vaccine for them. Even, you know, influenza, we have to take a new shot every year because of the drift and shift of the antigens. I'm not convinced that we're going to be able to find an effective, safe vaccine that will have long-term benefits. That being said, where is higher education in this? Higher education has a role to play now. And if we embrace that role and we give it a chance to evolve, we can use this crisis as an opportunity to become something far better. If we try and hold on to the past, we will never see what the future is possible. And we, we, we know that higher education provides opportunities for making a living, financial gain, but it's part of being in a society and being part in a community. And we need to embrace that. Just like people coming together on campus, whether they're physically together, or whether they're virtually together. The opportunity to, to share ideas and concepts in a free and safe environment is absolutely critical. You know, there's so much in our society that has become so divisive that, that it's them against, against us. 
and we're trying to get a step ahead of everybody. But as a community, COVID-19 may be the launch pad for something great. And I'm hoping that higher education will use this rocket ship to become something far better than we could ever imagine. We're an entrepreneurial country. We find opportunities to solve problems. We have a problem. The solution is there. We just have to figure out where it is. I want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow we'll have a discussion about the GOP convention and the way COVID-19 factored into that convention. I'll be looking forward to talking with Colleen Haggerty and Bersha Sharma about that tomorrow. And I want to really thank Sheldon Jacobson and Juliana Kaplan for, I didn't know if we were going to get through all these topics and we got through most of them really lively conversation and the great depth of knowledge. I want to thank you both for um, making time to talk on COVID calls today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Stay healthy, everyone, and we will see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.